One of the things I love about these conferences, and again, we've been doing, Not By Works has been around 22 years. Um, just to give you a quick uh, testimony while I'm waiting for the projector to warm up here. Uh, so, been in ministry 32 years, pastored for a while, still pastoring as a kind of a augment, augmenting what we do with Not By Works, but got into academics for 12 years, not, hadn't planned on it, just kind of the Lord's journey. And it was through that experience that we launched Not By Works. It was originally a, a, just an auxiliary ministry to my classroom ministry for students, and it just kind of took off, started writing, and it eventually became our sole uh, focus on ministry. And so we've, we do travel a lot um, and, uh, and speak at conferences all over the country. Uh, we have six kids, as Justin mentioned, <clears throat> and we've uh, pretty much raised them on the road. And so we've gotten to see a lot, meet a lot of people, do, do a lot of neat things. We do a lot of conferences like this, but we also speak at conferences that are, uh, you know, at hotels and larger venues that have multiple speakers over several days. We do the Tulsa Mid-America Prophecy Conference every year in May. This year it's in May. Uh, we do the Dallas Pre-Trib Conference. We've done several other um, events like that. Someone's, my daughter said someone had an Iron Sharpens Iron shirt on. Who's that? Anyway, whoever that, is that, is that like the ministry Iron Sharpens Iron? Or is it just from Proverbs 27? Okay. Because sp- I've spoken at like 50 Iron Sharpens Iron conferences, and I'm doing another one in September, a men's conference. So anyway, uh, we have a kindred spirit. Iron does sharpen iron. So, But anyway, um, one of the things I love is at these events, the Q&A and the informal times at the booth or down at the uh, fellowship time. And it often causes me to kind of tweak a little bit of what I was going to talk about because, I mean, I could talk, we could talk about this for weeks. And so, but based on your questions and comments, it kind of steers me in a different direction. So I'm going to try to do that with the second session because there's something that I know I won't have time to get to tomorrow, but I really would like to get to it tonight. So I'm going to tweak a little bit of what I was going to do. And uh, I put over 350 slides in this presentation and I can, with the software I use, I can skip around. So I'm not, I don't have to prepare it ahead of time, but I do want to pick up where we left off with God's kingdom promise. And I'm going to shorten this just to give you a high level. And then I want to get into some of Daniel's uh, prophecy. So <clears throat> I promised we'd go back to Genesis three after the fall. It all started in the garden, of course. Um, uh, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. By the way, all of my verses are from the New King James. And so if it's something different, I'll note it on the screen. But if it doesn't say so, it's from the New King James. And the New King James capitalizes seed, as you see there. I think you see there, yeah, in red. And there's a reason for that. This is a verse that has puzzled Hebrew scholars for, you know, centuries, those who studied the Semitic languages and the ancient Near East. And it's because of that word seed. The word seed is the Hebrew word zerah, and it always means the seed from a male, literally semen. But notice in this verse, it's her seed. Now that would have jumped off the page to a Jew reading Moses' writings here. What in the world is going on? Well, even though Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, God is the ultimate author. And when the Holy Spirit guided Moses to write her seed, it was for a reason. Um, And it's a reference. In fact, it's the earliest reference 
to God's solution to man's sin problem in the Bible. Theologians call it the protoevangelium, proto first, euangelion gospel, so it's the first reference to the gospel. Um, some modern English translations just translate it offspring, but that really misses the entire point. Um, it's the seed. And notice he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, he there is capitalized. That's because it's a reference ultimately to the seed of the woman. Now, <clears throat> the woman doesn't have the seed. The man does. So why would he refer to the, her seed or the seed of a woman? Well, what do we know about Christ? He was born of a virgin. He wasn't conceived through Joseph. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And he had to be because sin is passed down through the blood. So the only way Christ could be fully God and fully human was to have a divine conception, to have the Holy Spirit conceive with Mary, and the result is a sinless human being. Uh, if if uh, Joseph's seed had been involved, the blood would have been tainted. So this is a powerful, albeit veiled, reference to the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, and ultimately the one who's going to destroy Satan, he, Christ, shall bruise your head. And so here is the beginning of a promise that God's got this, that he's putting together a plan. I mean, he's, he's timeless. God exists outside of time, space, and matter. In fact, God created time, space, and matter in the beginning, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, that's time, God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. So God created time, space, and matter. He exists outside of time, space, and matter. It's one of the reasons we sometimes struggle to reconcile things such as sovereignty and free will, because we're constrained to linear thinking and time, space, and matter. God's outside of all that. Everything happens in the eternal now to God. But in any event, God, from a human perspective, lays out this plan that is revealed to us in the written Word of God, and it involves ultimately the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, destroying Satan, he shall bruise your head, even though you shall bruise his heel. What's that a reference to? Well, Satan, you know, he crucified, he killed the Messiah. He killed Christ, but he didn't stay dead, right? He rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave. So it was not a mortal wound, but Christ will ultimately destroy the devil. So that's the beginnings of this, again, in very sort of veiled form, God's plan. But it begins to become more and more clear as we go through time. Yeah, sure. I'm just looking for a short example. What are you trying to say? You could give a long answer. Was Mary's egg talking about the stuff? Was Mary's egg utilized in the birth of Jesus? Um, I guess. I guess I would say so. I mean, I don't know if I've ever really thought about it in that granular, but uh, yeah. So, am I okay? Can I? Oh, you can speak on if you want. No, but I mean, if I did, I step on a landmine there. No. Okay. 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 Good. All right. I had never thought about that. Yeah. 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 And it, and there was obviously no male seed other than the Holy Spirit. And, the, and, and, and I'd always just thought about an egg because of an 
Yeah, so I would say, you know, the Bible obviously is silent on that, so it's theologically, it's a theological supposition, uh, but my understanding of the hypostatic union would mean that in order to be fully human, there had to be a human component. That, that's, that's, that's my, so the, he's 100% God and 100% human. He gets 100% humanity from uh, Eve, and he, or from Mary, and then he gets the, the divinity. So, good. Well, I'm glad I passed that test. Whew, man. Took my coat off and they turned the air on and it's still getting hot in here for some reason. I'm not sure what to make of that. So then as we read forward in God's plan, you come to the interaction with Abraham where he makes the Abrahamic covenant, an unconditional promise that includes land, seed, and blessing. He says, uh, I will give you this land. Uh, I'll make you a great nation that in all the families in the earth will be blessed through you. So the Abrahamic covenant, which I'm going to not take the time to really drill down on and diagram out for you because I want to get to Daniel's prophecy, but it is the foundational covenant because in it, God unconditionally promises three things. Land, in fact, in Genesis 15, He's going to actually give the boundaries of that land. And uh, in my book, I, I show you that to this day, Israel has never occupied, they've had the rights to, but they've never physically occupied the full boundaries of, of the land to this day. Uh, so does that mean God lied or no, there must be a future for national Israel in the land or God's word would not be true. Uh, seed, which means that ultimately through Abraham, all nations on the earth will be blessed. The ultimate seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. Galatians tells us that. Um, there are four seeds of Abraham mentioned in scripture. One is the natural seed of Abraham, meaning a Jew genetically by birth. Then there's the natural spiritual seed of Abraham, which means a Jew who also believed the gospel and is born again. Paul talks about that in Romans 9. Then there's the spiritual seed, which means a Gentile who is not genetically and naturally a Jew by birth, but they are adopted into the family of God and therefore get to partake of the ultimate blessings in the kingdom, the spiritual seed. And then there's Jesus Christ, the ultimate seed. And so because of this unconditional promise to Abraham, it, it's going to see its fulfillment in the kingdom someday when, as Jeremiah tells us, everyone on earth will know about Christ from the least to the greatest. No man will need to teach his neighbor, by the way. So we can't be living in that kingdom now because how would you reconcile that with the Great Commission, which specifically commands us to go and teach? And when the kingdom is in, inaugurated and fulfilled, guess what? We don't have to teach. Everybody will know about him. Because he'll be sitting on the throne, he'll giving, be giving the State of the World Address every January on CNN, or Fox News maybe, but since it's the kingdom, who knows, probably neither now at this point. Um, but it's a land and seat, and then blessing, ultimately everyone on earth will receive blessing. And, and that's when the curse is removed, and the new heavens and new earth come into play, and it's you know, the eternal kingdom. So that, that uh, promise is reiterated again and again and again. You see it in the New Testament. You see references made back to it. But then as we move through time, we come to King David and at the Davidic covenant, we call this, uh, when God promised him, I will establish his kingdom and your kingdom shall be established forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, part of Daniel of, of 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16 related to Solomon, 
and the building of the temple, but clearly not all of it because Solomon's not on the throne anymore, right? And this was an eternal kingdom. And one of the things that people, uh, I think, overlook is that every passage that talks about Christ taking the throne speaks of Him taking it forever. Of His kingdom there shall, no, shall be no end. He shall reign forever and ever. That's the reason that when I show my uh, uh, charts like this one, you notice when you know, you've got Christ coming back in that down arrow where it says second coming. And then according to Daniel 12, there's a 75-day preparation period before the official inauguration of the kingdom. Uh, we don't know a lot about why that is, except that the Bible tells us that that's there. Presumably, it's to clean up all the bloodshed from Armageddon and the battle that took place at the second coming. But then notice, I've got the messianic kingdom. I don't like to use the phrase millennial kingdom, even though the best book ever written about the millennium, that was the title of it, Millennial Kingdom by John Walbert, um, because it's a bit misleading. It seems to imply that the kingdom is only a thousand years. But the kingdom is not a thousand years. The kingdom is eternal. When Christ comes back to take the throne, the kingdom continues in perpetuity. We see that in Daniel 7. We see that in Luke 1. Uh, in, well, I don't want to take the time to look it up, but when uh, Mary is told that, the Christ, that she's carrying the Christ child, he, she, he, she says, he says, you will, she, he will take the throne of his father David and he will rule forever and ever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So I like to differentiate. I just call it the millennial phase of the kingdom, which is on the old earth. Then the earth is destroyed, but the kingdom continues on with the Godhead on the throne, the triune Godhead on the throne. So that was what was promised to David. So we've got the Abrahamic covenant and then the Davidic covenant, when your throne shall be established forever. Um, he goes on to say, uh, in his David's prayer of thanksgiving, following God's unconditional covenant to David, he says, your words are true and you have promised this goodness. Uh, in Second Chronicles, because of the covenant that he made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him. Um, what did we read about earlier in Second Peter? People mocking, saying, where is this promise? I'm just trying to show you now, and I'm going fast. I know that there is a promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. It's reiterated in Genesis 12. It's reiterated in 2 Samuel 7 that there is a promise of a better day uh, coming. And, and then in Jeremiah 33, we see the new covenant. So you've got the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the land covenant, and now the new covenant. When he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of David. So where is the promised kingdom? That's, that's the question at hand. Uh, a lot of people suggest that it was spiritual, it was metaphorical, it was never intended to be literal, that he's reigning in our hearts. That does not comport with the plain reading of Scripture, which gives the dimensions of the temple, the construction of the temple, the boundaries of the geographic region of the kingdom, and so many other plain, normal teachings of, of the Old Testament. Again, why would we take the promises related to Christ's first advent literally, literal virgin born, literal uh, birthplace in Bethlehem, and forth, but some reason, which same prophets in many cases, same teaching, uh, somehow those rules change, and those were all meant to be one big symbolic metaphor, right? Uh, you can't do that. You can't pick and choose which promises you want to take literally and which ones. It's a zero-sum game. So you have to be consistent in your hermeneutic, consistent in the way you interpret 
um, the Scripture. So uh, the question then is, has God changed His mind? Some people say, well, because Israel rejected the Messiah, God's through with Israel. And the church has replaced Israel. And, and many people that teach that, for them, Israel is no different than any other country, like Costa Rica or Brazil or, you know, uh, Mexico. They're just another country. No, no. Israel, the Bible says, is the apple of God's eye. And He has a future and a plan. That's what Paul says in Romans 9 through 11. Has God cast away Israel forever? By no means. By no means, he says. They're the deliverer at the end of Romans 11, the deliverer is going to come out of Zion and they will be delivered into their kingdom. They'll be, all Israel will be delivered. So if God's word means anything, it means that a kingdom is coming. It's going to be centered in Jerusalem. It's going to be centered in Israel. And uh, we will be ruling and reigning with Christ. It'll be a global kingdom in scope. It'll be perfect peace and righteousness. But God hasn't changed his mind. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah makes it clear that that could never happen. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that there will be no day and no and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant. So let me ask you a question. Did the sun rise this morning? So to speak, I know the sun doesn't literally rise, but did we have a new day today? Do we have a new night tonight? Of course we do. Every time you see that sun, you ought to remember God's promises are true and a kingdom is coming. He hasn't forsaken his promises. Uh, Jeremiah 31, thus says the Lord who gives sun for a light by day and the ordinances of moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances, the stars and the moon and the sun, ever depart from before me, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me. See any stars lately? That's a reminder that God does not change his mind. So God definitely hasn't changed his mind. And then I've already mentioned, you know, that some people say the promised kingdom was figurative. It was one big symbolic uh, metaphor. But notice the details. You know, again, he's going to promise a land. He's going to give the boundaries of it. I mentioned this. Does this sound figurative or symbolic? That it's going to be from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And he lists the geographic entities that were there at that time. Why would God give that level of detail if it was all just metaphorical and He's going to reign in our hearts in a nebulous way? Um, how would David have understood God's promise that he would establish a kingdom and that his house and kingdom and throne would be established forever? I mean, put, put yourself in King David's shoes. God's pro God, the creator of the universe, is promising you a house, that's a temple. What's David picturing? Is he picturing some metaphorical, nebulous, kumbaya gathering of people or is he picturing a structure he's picturing a structure uh, a kingdom what's he picturing he's picturing boundaries the thing that all ancient near eastern kings pictured when they talked about kingdoms a throne what's he picturing he's picturing physical seats that you would sit on and christ is going to sit on that throne someday the son of david and so you can't take something that was written a thousand years you know before christ and then come along and take the New Testament and say, well, he didn't really mean that. I mean, how would you feel if you're David and you're in heaven and David's going, wow, Lord, I feel like you pulled a fast one on me. I mean, I, you know, how am I supposed to know that a thousand years later you're going to change the rules of the meaning of words and really what you meant was you're not really going to have a throne or a kingdom or a house. Uh, in fact, your nation's not even going to exist anymore. The church is going to replace you and it's all about the church. 
That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's certainly not the way uh, David would have understood it. And so then you come to the type, uh, ministry of Christ, and what does he refer to right out of the bat? Um, uh, or John the Baptist first, and then Christ, same thing. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Okay, you're a first century Jew. You've been waiting for the pro- what the prophets of old promised, which is a kingdom. You understand the prophecies of Daniel that talked about a Babylonian captivity and then a Persian, Medo-Persian captivity, and then, uh, then you'd be under dominion of the Greeks and then the Romans, and then someday Christ, the Messiah, the Christ, is going to come back and destroy the Roman Empire, Daniel's statue and Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 and so forth. You understood all that. And so here they're saying the kingdom is at hand. You're thinking, what? This metaphorical, nebulous, non-tangible kingdom is going to be at hand in my heart? Of course not. You're expecting it. And so why do you think then that throughout Christ's ministry, uh, the disciples were so obsessed with the kingdom? They wanted to know who's going to sit where in the kingdom. Remember, one of the disciples' moms asked for their son, her sons to sit on the right and the left. That doesn't sound figurative to me. Peter was constantly asking, what are we going to get in the kingdom when we get there? We've left everything. We, what, what, his question makes no sense unless he anticipated a literal a kingdom. You see it again and again. You see it uh, with you know, the, Jesus promising the disciples to sit on 12 thrones. Do you remember that? Well, how would they have taken that? There's nothing in that language that indicates even in the slightest sense that Jesus was being figurative or metaphorical. They expected an earthly kingdom. And then, as I already mentioned in Luke 19, Jesus says sort of not so fast, you know, you you think the kingdom's going to come immediately. It's going to come all right, but not just give it some time. And then, uh, you know, all of the parables that Jesus gives in the final week of his life there uh, in Matthew 21, 22, 23, uh, or yeah, 23, when he talks about the parable of the wedding feast and some of those things. They make no sense unless there's a literal kingdom coming. And then uh, in the Olivet Discourse, you know, he talks about the kingdom. The whole Olivet Discourse is the answer to the question. So so let me set the scene for you. Matthew 23, it's Wednesday. Jesus had those wonderful, loving words like our kind, loving Savior always used when he called them whitewashed tombs and vipers and snakes and stuff. You know, we've created a much kinder, gentler Jesus in our culture today. But he, he had some pretty harsh things to say for those Jewish leaders who were rejecting him and about to hand him up to be crucified. And then the disciples, who by this time are getting a little nervous, this is Wednesday, it was Sunday, the triumphal entry actually happened on Monday. We celebrated on Sunday, but it happened March 30th, 33 AD on Monday. So it was Sunday when he had that conversation outside Jerusalem with them about the parable of the Minas. It's been three or four days. They're seeing what's happening. They're seeing Jesus interact, and he's not acting like a guy who's about to take the throne. He's, he's in getting, people are getting more and more angry at him. And so the, the Bible tells us uh, in Matthew that, or I can't remember which synoptic gospel writer it was, that as he's leaving after that scathing rebuke of the Jewish leaders, the disciples sort of nervously look off at the temple and they say something, and I'm paraphrasing now, but something like, Lord, isn't that temple magnificent? Look at this wonderful temple. And what does Jesus say? This temple, not one stone's going to be left upon another. It's going to be destroyed. Don't you guys get it? Again, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the tone. And now he's really got the disciples' attention because they're thinking, what? 
the temple where you're going to take the throne and fulfill all of Old Testament promises about the kingdom. Remember the promises that we looked at? And you're going to inaugurate this kingdom. That temple's going to be destroyed. How can this be? How can you take the throne if the temple's going to be destroyed? And so now the disciples are really in a tizzy. And so they go, uh, Lord, well, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And that, I believe that's essentially one ecstatic utterance question. Some people try to outline the Olivet Discourse into three questions based on that. I think there's just three different ways of asking the same thing. Basically, they're thinking, Lord, then when? When are you coming? And the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24 and 25, a long, long sermon, is his answer to that question. And he gives them a blow-by-blow you know, answer to exactly what will happen in the seven years leading up to his return. And it parallels perfectly with Daniel's prophecy. In fact, Jesus even quotes Daniel by name in the Olivet Discourse. It parallels perfectly with Revelation 6 to 18, the tribulation period. And he's basically saying, you want to know when I'm coming back? Watch for these things. And he gives us the, the information that's occur- that takes place in the tribulation. The Olivet Discourse is not about the church. It's not about the rapture. There's nothing about the church or the rapture in the Olivet Discourse. It's all about Israel and you know, when he will come back to establish the kingdom. So every step of the way, you see this, you know, this reference to a literal kingdom. It's not figurative. But now let's fast forward. Okay, he's, he's been crucified. He's risen from the dead on Resurrection Sunday. He's appeared to for 40 days to thousands of people. Um, and now he's on the Mount of Ascension, that same mountain. And uh, the disciples are, you, you kind of get the, the idea that they're gathered around him. And I, I, I always chuckle at this. The text doesn't say this. But, you know, Jesus, remember, says, you know, uh, go back to Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit, be my witnesses, you know, Acts 1.8. But the disciples are there, and, and it's, it does, the text doesn't say this, so I'm not saying this is how it actually went down, but this is how I imagine it might have gone down. So the disciples are saying to the Lord, Lord, um, we're sorry. <laughs> we didn't understand the fact that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We didn't get that you, know, you had to suffer such a cruel death. We're sorry we abandoned you at the cross. Um, by the way, thank you for saving us from the penalty of sin. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for our eternal salvation, paying our sin debt. We really appreciate all that. But now, what about that kingdom? (laughs) When is the kingdom going to come? And that's what they say. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? Is it finally ready? And that would have been the perfect time for the Lord to dispel the notion of a literal kingdom if, in fact, the kingdom was going to be figurative and we're in the kingdom now like so many teach. He didn't say that. He didn't say, oh, you silly disciples, haven't you figured it out yet? There's not going to be a literal kingdom. This is it. Enjoy. He didn't say that. In fact, he affirmed the literal kingdom when he answered them. And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Times is the Greek word chronos, the length or duration. Seasons is the exact date, kairos, the date, which the Father has put in his own authority. He did not rebuke them for believing in a literal kingdom. All he said was, it's coming. It's just not for you to know when. So we still see the promised kingdom. Then we could go 
you know, we just went through the Gospels, Christ's earthly ministry. We've, now we're in Acts. We could go through the rest of Acts. We can go to Acts 3 and Peter's offer of the kingdom once again. Times of refreshing shall come. We could see references to the kingdom as we already did in Peter. throughout, the, And then ultimately in the book of Revelation ends with Christ coming back, riding on a white horse, and to tread the winepress of the wrath and fury of Almighty God and, and take the throne and rule over a kingdom. The Bible ends exactly the way it started and said it would in Genesis chapter 3. So the promised kingdom uh, was not figurative, not by any stretch of the imagination. So any questions about that before I move into, for the rest of our time in this session, to the teaching about uh, Daniel's famous prophecy in Daniel chapter uh, 7? Any questions about the kingdom and the tracing the kingdom from Genesis to Revelation? I mean, that was very fast, I know, and we just kind of came at you 100 miles an hour, but I want you to understand that the kingdom is a fundamental key component of God's plan of the ages, and it's in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Yeah, back here. So that's a great question, and I get that question a lot. And I think the first thing we need to be reminded of is that the, temp- the next temple to be built is not Christ's temple. It's the Antichrist temple. It's a satanic temple. And we also need to be reminded that Israel today is not in the land in belief. They're there in unbelief. They're, you know... The regathering in the land that the Bible talks about in you know, Ezekiel 36 and in uh, Jeremiah and several passages and that Jesus refers to in Matthew 24, 31 is going to not occur until Christ comes back at the second coming and supernaturally regathers the Israel into the land. So um, I get into this in Spirit of the Antichrist. 1948 was a setting of the stage, perhaps, most likely, but it didn't fulfill a prophecy. The next prophecy to be fulfilled is the rapture. We, we just need to ingrain that in our minds. There's no prophecy that has to happen before the rapture can happen. So the regathering that occurred on May 15, 1948, when Israel was rebirthed as a nation, was not in belief. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew um, 24. This is His own words talking about His return. Um, immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is him answering the disciples' question, when are you going to come? The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This parallels exactly what we read about in Revelation 18 and 19 with the battle of Armageddon. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, and in, in this context, elect means Israel, the nation of Israel, from the four winds, I can't even read my own writing because I've got so much written over it, from one end of heaven to the other. So this is the fulfillment of that regathering. So 
to answer your question directly, I don't get all excited about plans to rebuild the temple or the birth of a red heifer, because that's Satan's temple. That's his plan. So the temple, a temple, has to be rebuilt in order for the Antichrist to set himself up as God and take the throne at the midpoint of the, of the uh, tribulation. So let's put that chart back up. Um, but that, that temple doesn't have to be built before the rapture could happen. I mean, they, the, the, let me find that chart here. I'm skipping so far ahead. Um, so if you'll notice the rapture on the far left, which puts an end to the church age, then see I've got in, sort of in blue there, preparation period, unknown length. The tribulation begins with the signing of the peace treaty, Daniel 9, 27. The rapture is something is a different event altogether. If you've got two different events, there must of necessity be a length of time between them. So the rapture doesn't start the tribulation. The rapture ends the church age. We don't know how long after the rapture it will be before the Antichrist starts, signs the peace treaty, starting the clock ticking on that final seven-year period, which I'm about to show you here in a second. Um, most people speculate it's probably going to be months, maybe a year. Uh, some scholars like uh, Arnie Fruchtenbaum think it could be several years. We don't really know. My guess, and I talk about this in What Lies Ahead as, as I piece together the biblical evidence, my best uh, guess is how it's going to go down is, of course, the rapture happens first. In the chaos that ensues after the rapture, and we're going to talk about the rapture Sunday morning in the worship hour, uh, a northern alliance based on Daniel 12 forms to try to seize the moment and take advantage of the chaos that's, that's going on globally and attacks Israel. That's the battle of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39, actually. And then according to Daniel 12, a western alliance forms to kind of come in and uh, attack the north. Now, their agenda is they also want to take over this coveted holy land that's been the seat of three major religions. But uh, God, according to Ezekiel 38 and 39, supernaturally defends Israel. And if you've ever seen the movie Left Behind and that whole series, the way they depict that is really pretty accurate, pretty biblical. They, they, these planes just drop out of the sky for no explanation. It's a supernatural intervention. God protects Israel. But what I believe happens is that Western alliance that formed takes credit. They say, oh, look, we won. We defeated the, the, the Northern Alliance. And it's my speculation. I can't prove this unequivocally. There's no verse that says, thus saith the Lord. But as I piece it together, I really believe this view has merit. It's my speculation that the Western Alliance, the leader of it militarily, is the guy who then becomes the Antichrist. That because he... Preempt, he takes credit for, even though he didn't really do it, he takes credit for preempting World War III or four or whatever it'll be by then. The world says, oh, you're our savior. You're our you, you're incredible peacemaker. You're gonna, we want you to lead us. And so he seizes the moment of popularity, becomes the one world dictator, and signs that treaty. When he signs that treaty, you see it listed there, Daniel 9, 27, where I say Antichrist unveiled. I mean, that's when we know who the Antichrist is, is because he's the one that signs the treaty, according to Daniel 9.27. That starts the clock ticking on that seven-year period. Now, we could talk all night about things that happened in that seven-year period. The Bible has a lot to say about it. The bulk of the book of Revelation, chapters 6 to 18, is all about that one seven-year period. 
chapter 6 to 18. So, so the next temple that's going to be built is the one that the Antichrist at the midpoint there, see where it says abomination of desolation? That's Daniel talks about it and Jesus quotes Daniel talking about it. When the Antichrist sets himself up as God and demands that the whole world worship him. And so there has to be a temple in place in order for that to happen. But that temple, whenever it's built, uh, is going to be destroyed when Christ comes back at the Battle of Armageddon. And then a new temple, the millennial temple, the great, incredible, glorious temple where the Shekinah glory once again returns, is described in Ezekiel 40 to 48, um, those uh, nine chapters in there. So um, I just don't really get all uh, excited about that news other than it's just one more setting of the stage. It's one more piece of the puzzle that says we could be getting close because before that satanic temple is built, the rapture will have already happened, you know. So uh, I talk about this in my DVD, Signs of the Times, but I borrowed this illustration from a professor of mine, John Walvoord, and it really helped me, and I think it's helped other people as I've retold it. But he uses the illustration, and I actually chart it out in the DVD. But if you, uh, if you long about October, start seeing Christmas decorations go up in stores, and you start hearing Christmas music and red and green lights and Christmas sales and stuff, you begin to think, ah, Christmas must be getting close, right? But then suddenly it hits you, wait a minute, it's only October. If Christmas is getting close, that must mean Thanksgiving is even closer, right? Because Thanksgiving comes before Christmas, right? So if we see all of these signs like talk and chatter about the rebuilding of the Antichrist temple, they don't call it the Antichrist temple, but that's what it is. Um, We know the rapture has to happen before that. So again, not setting dates, but just saying if the stage is being set for those events, it follows logically that since the rapture has to happen before it, that we must be getting closer to the rapture. Does that make sense? So that's what we mean by the temple, um, but it's, it's not the temple that will ultimately be where Christ uh, reigns from. Any other questions about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is it going to be like that Christ will be revealed to them with the same understanding as what we have that they might receive? Or is it a elected to be? No. So, great question. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Western Alliance, yeah. I didn't mean to imply that. Hypothetically, I suppose it could be, but it seems to be more of Western Europe. We know that the revived Roman Empire is going to have five nations from the West and five from the East, so five from Western Europe, like could be France, if it were to happen today, maybe France, Spain, you know, Great Britain, whatever, and five from the East, which would be the, you know, Eastern European nations um, because of the five toes in Daniel's statue, right? Uh, or ten toes, five on each foot. So um, I don't know that the United States 
plays a role per se. Um, certainly nothing that explicitly would parallel geographically this nation. However, as I talk extensively about in Spirit of the Antichrist, uh, the, if the rapture were to happen in our day, we know that the Luciferian conspiracy, which if you don't know that term, it, we talk about it extensively in Spirit of the Antichrist, and it's a term that they use and have been for thou, several thousand years. The Luciferian conspiracy is a conspiracy between Satan, demons, and human agents to take over the world. Okay. So we know that the seat of financial power right now in the Luciferian is New York. We know that a big part of the seat of political power is D.C., not exclusively. Uh, we know that you know, the United Nations is in New York. There are a lot of components. The, the Federal Reserve, the privately owned Federal Reserve, owned by six families, uh, is in the United States. So there are a lot of components right now of the satanic leadership of the world that are based in the United States. So if the rapture were to happen today, it follows that you know, the United States could play some role in this Antichrist reign, but we don't know. The United States could be long gone. I mean, I often ask people at these conferences, you know, has it ever occurred to you that if the Lord tarries is coming, we might be all raptured as Chinese citizens? Yeah. I mean, that's po possible. See, we need to understand the United States, in 6,000 years of human history, the United States is only 246 some odd years old. The average age of a nation historically is 200 years. So we tend to see things through the lens of American exceptionalism, but, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not all that, is all I'm saying. I mean, I'm, I praise God for our country. I'm as patriotic as the next guy. I'm thankful I got to be raised in this country. The United States has been used mightily of God to spread the gospel, and it's the greatest nation on earth in terms of the freedoms that we have had up to now. Um, but we need to, I mean, we need to realize that the United States is not necessarily all that in God's big picture. We may be long gone. We may not be, but we may be. Um, a good friend of mine, Ed Heinsohn, that I've really enjoyed getting to know, working with him at conferences over the last 10 or 12 years, uh, he does a lot of international travel and speaks at prophecy conferences. Um, I don't do that, but he says, he said, it's, it's really funny, you know, as I travel the world and speak on Bible prophecy, there's no other country in the world where they ask me, you know, Where's Brazil in Bible prophecy? Or where's Costa Rica? But every single Bible prophecy at conference I do anywhere in America, the first question is always, where's America in Bible prophecy? You know, it's just, that's just who we are. We're just proud of our American heritage, you know. So, so that's the answer to that. Now, uh, I really wanted to answer your other question. So it would be helpful if I remembered it. <laughs> what was it again? Oh, Israel, yeah. So I want to be very clear, the supernatural regathering relates only to their geographic, literally taking them from wherever they've been scattered and redepositing them in the land. It has nothing to do with their individual salvation. Every human being from Adam to the end of the age that gets saved has to personally believe the gospel. And that's, by the way, what Romans 9 and 10 is all about, and um, I think we've missed the, the real meaning of that passage. Romans chapters 9 through 11 are all about Israel. What about Israel? Has God forsaken them? And so forth. And in chapter 10, Paul says, and I'm going to summarize it for you, that 
His heart's desire is for the nation of Israel to be delivered into the kingdom. It says in our English translation, saved, and we've become prone, every time we see the English word save, we think it means eternally. But it might interest you to know, and I've got an appendix in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, that details every occurrence of it. The Greek word sozo is only used 108 times in the entire Greek New Testament, and 58% of the time, that's the word save. When, we see, when you see the word save, it's the word sozo. 58% of the time, it has nothing to do with eternal life. It's not talking about individual salvation. So it, it's, it's like being saved from sickness, being saved from danger. When the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee on the boat and the storm arose, they went and woke Jesus up and said, Lord, save us. They didn't mean, Lord, give us eternal life, <laughs> you know, rescue us from hell. They meant there's a storm, save our lives. So we've always got to ask the question, save from what? And in Romans 10, he's talking about Israel's national deliverance into the kingdom. And if you follow the train of thought there, what he says is that in order for Israel to be delivered into the kingdom as a nation, they've got to call on the name of the Lord. Joel 2, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, that's a second coming passage, will be delivered into the kingdom. Jesus, by the way, said the same thing. In Matthew 23, which we talked about earlier, he said to those Jewish leaders when he was rebuking them, you will not see me again until you cry, Hosanna, or until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalm 118, that famous messianic psalm, um, which, by the way, is, is uh, where we get Psalm 118, 24, this is the day, you know that great chorus we sing, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Well, every day is the day that the Lord has made, but most people don't understand that's talking about the second coming. <laughs> that, pat, that verse is a messianic psalm talking about the return of Christ to inaugurate the kingdom, if you go back and look at Psalm 118. That's the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice in that day when He comes back. But anyway, in that same passage, Jesus quotes Psalm 118 and says, you're not going to see me until you call out. So if you think about the two advents of Christ, there's a really fascinating juxtaposition that takes place. At His first advent, the national leaders cried, crucify Him, crucify Him, give us Barabbas. A few remnant that believed He was who He said He was cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. The next time around, there will still be many Jews who reject the gospel during the tribulation, take the mark of the beast, and are not saved. But the nation will believe first. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans 10. How can they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe if there's no preacher? And so, and so, so then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So what he's saying there is individual salvation comes by faith national deliverance comes by calling on the name of the Lord. And so the second time around, by the end of the tribulation, first of all, you're going to have 144,000 Jewish missionaries at the, at the beginning, Revelation 7, that are marked out after the rapture to spread the gospel throughout the world. And you'll have people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language that get saved during the tribulation, not just Jews. And, but by the end of that seven years, there's a whole host of believers who believe the gospel, and they've not taken the mark of the beast, you know. Um, believers won't do that during the tribulation, and they are ready to receive their king. And this time when he comes back, they're ready, and they're going to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in that instant, Christ comes back, gather, sends the angels to gather the nation of Israel, and then deposit them back in the land. He comes back on the Mount of Olives, just like he said he would. And, you know, cast Satan into prison and so forth and so on. So, um, so Israel 
is a, obviously the key part of God's plan of the ages. It goes all the way back to the establishment of Israel with Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and then he had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, um, and, and, and you know, so forth and so on. So does that help clarify? Anybody else? Yes. So that's a great question, and this is worth, I think, talking about. So uh, I just want to kind of follow the, where the rabbits take us. So that's an outstanding question. So uh, if you use this as a frame of reference again, and I should have brought my pointer up here, but at the rapture, which you see on the far left there, I want to contrast the rapture and the second coming, which is at the end of the seven-year tribulation. So everybody see where we're looking? Rapture on the left, second coming in the black arrow there on the right. So let's talk about the situation on earth after each event. After the rapture, every, in that moment, I'm going to talk about this in the worship hour tomorrow in my message, one minute after the rapture, every single person on earth will be an unbeliever. I'll just think about that for a moment, how horrifying that will be. So, uh, but God very quickly, once the tribulation starts, sets aside 144,000 Jewish missionaries, the tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's all about Israel once again. So if you think of God's plan of the ages as a stage, Israel was center stage up until the church began on, in Acts chapter 2. They exited stage left. The church is now center stage. We're God's envoys. We're His representatives. We're the ones doing what God has us do. But we're going to exit stage up, I guess you'd call it. And then guess what? The act is the play still going on. The next act is Israel, once again, is back center stage. But anyway, those missionaries will be sharing the gospel. So many of the people that get saved during tribulation will be converts as a result of the ministry of the 144,000. Not exclusively. Anybody can be saved. And I believe, personally, I don't know what your pastor believes, but that uh, there will be people who heard the gospel before the tribulation and rejected it but afterwards get saved second uh, Thess 2 is a little bit unclear there it doesn't explicitly tell us that if you heard the gospel before you can't possibly get saved it just says it's going to be harder to get saved so obviously if someone's here tonight or anybody listening to this i know you're recording it thinks i don't know about this jesus thing and i don't know if i need a savior and i'll just I'll, if i see all this stuff this hickson guy's talking about happen then i'll trust Christ. That's a terrible mistake because deception is going to reach unprecedented heights during the tribulation. And if you're deceived now and you think you're going to break free from it, I wouldn't risk it. Today's the day of salvation. But yeah, there will be people after the rapture who get saved. In fact, it's an innumerable amount. And then, but, after, but the second coming, it's just the opposite. So at the second coming, Jesus describes the scene in Matthew 25 we're already, we've already been raptured. We're already with Him in heaven in our glorified bodies. We come back with Him, Revelation 19, 11 to 15, and to set up the kingdom. And when He comes back, 
there are two kinds of people on earth at the second coming in their physical bodies. Only, in fact, there's always only two kinds of people, either the saved or the unsaved, right? He calls them the sheep and the goats. What does he say to the sheep? The believers, those who got saved during the tribulation and lived through it. They weren't martyred. He says, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. So they're the ones that enter the kingdom, you know, the Messianic kingdom there, and repopulate it. Uh, to the goats, by the way, the unbelievers, he says, depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So there's the only people alive on earth after the second coming are believers. At the beginning of the millennium, it'll all be believers. At the beginning of the tribulation, it's all unbelievers. You follow me? So at, during the millennium, those people that enter the millennial phase of the kingdom in their physical bodies, that is, they survived the tribulation and they had gotten saved during the tribulation, They'll be the ones that procreate and have babies, and it's a thousand-year millennium. That's a long time. I mean, think about where we were a thousand years ago in human history right now. So their children, like any human being ever born, will be born dead in their trespasses and sin and need to be saved. So over time in the millennium, there will be a population of unbelievers that develops, children born who end up growing up and never trusting Christ, such that by the end of the thousand years, Christ sets Satan loose from prison, and he gathers together the unbelievers, and for one final battle, which is also called the Battle of Gog and Magog, it's confusing because it's not the same one as Ezekiel 38 and 39, but it's got the same name, um, and there's one final battle. But, but yeah, I just wanted to clarify that after the rapture, everyone on earth initially is an unbeliever, because all the believers are in heaven. After the second coming, everyone on earth is a believer, <laughs> because all the unbelievers are in the everlasting fire. So that's, that's kind of the distinction between the two. Good question. Anybody else? So I'm going to save, because of the lateness of the hour, I'm going to save. I really wanted to show you Daniel seven or Daniel 9. I think I'll do that in the Bible study hour tomorrow, the first hour. And then we'll do the rapture in the worship hour. And, I, and again, I know that won't answer all of your questions. We're just sort of cherry-picking some key topics, and hopefully it get you interested and uh, hopefully we can have some more Q&A after the Sunday school time or at the end of it. Um, but definitely feel free to stick around tonight and ask questions at the booth. And if you want a more comprehensive treatment, we've got several resources, either books or DVDs that you might uh, consider. Any last minute question? All right. Shall I close us in prayer or do you want to? Or Okay, good. So let me pray and then I'll turn it over to the pastor. Father, thank you again for this time. Thank you for your word. And Lord, just give us wisdom as we connect the dots and, and try to stay true to your word. And Lord, fill us with hope uh, as we think about the blessed hope uh, and the, the time when we will uh, meet your son and our savior face to face. And Lord, if there is one here that doesn't know you, Lord, how I pray that through this discussion, they would be reminded that you are God and that you're loving and that you have uh, a solution to man's sin problem, and that in simple childlike faith, they would trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, as the one who died and rose again for their sins, and is the only one that can give them eternal life. And it's in His precious name that we pray. Amen.